wow, no one, I thought no one heard me or was acknowledging me, and then there was a delayed response and everybody at once acknowledged. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all, um, even on this dark, dreary morning. Um, probably could have turned the heat on this morning, but October 2nd, turning the heat on? Seems too early, but who knows? Maybe by next Sunday we'll have to turn it on. But anyhow, uh, we have started, I think this is our third week, I believe, um, in a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And as we've been saying, uh, Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And the purpose of wisdom literature is to impart wisdom. Uh, it's to impart wisdom to help us to successfully navigate through the complexities of life. And this book, Ecclesiastes in particular, um, we are uh, invited into the explorations of this particular individual. And we're referring to this individual as the preacher because that's how he's introduced to us in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we're invited in on the explorations, really the thoughts of this preacher who is taking us on a tour essentially of his life. And his overall point is this, life is vapor. And what he means by this is that trying to grasp the meaning of life is elusive. It's, it's really difficult. It's impossible, in fact. And we've seen this through the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. Here, as we come to chapter 2 this morning, the preacher wants to do some experiments. He wants to test some things out because what he said in chapter 1 with his big idea, the overall thesis, life is vapor, that's the big summary um, that he reached at the end of his explorations. Now he's kind of going back to the beginning in chapter 2 of his explorations, and he's going to invite us to walk along with him as he goes through them for us. And in particular, this first test, this first experiment that he um, is going to do has to do with pleasure. He is investigating here the pursuit of pleasure. And his question, what he's wondering is, could it be, is it possible that, that pleasure holds the key to the meaning of life? Now, we know what his answer is going to be because he stated his thesis in chapter 1, but we're going to journey with him as he, um, we, as he shares his thoughts and invites us into um, his conclusions about this. So let me read chapter 2 for us. We're going to focus on the first 11 verses this morning. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone before me in Jerusalem. 
I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come into your presence as we reflect on your word this morning, and we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would open our eyes to see um, what is in this text from your word. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might be willing to hear it. And we pray, ultimately, that you would impart your wisdom to us, that we might learn to live well for our good and your glory. I pray that you would come to us in this moment and do these things in our midst, regardless of where we find ourselves right now, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe about the Christian faith. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want you to think about moments of pleasure in your life. Those moments that cause you to think, man, I, I, I wish this could last forever. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe after the fact, as you look back on those moments, as you reflect on them, you think to yourself, man, I wish that I could go back there. I, I wish that I could recreate that memory. Does this resonate with you? You know what I'm talking about at least a, a, a little bit? There are many pleasures in this life. Many, many pleasures. And many of these pleasures cause us to experience this particular kind of moment that I'm talking about. Um, maybe it's as you're eating great food or drink, and it just feels like this transcendent experience. By transcendent, I mean, you know, it's not ordinary. It, it's beyond human understanding. And you just have this moment where it's like, this, I feel like this, this food, this drink, points to something deeper, um, some deeper meaning in life. Maybe it's nature. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's Vacation, you know that feeling? Um, maybe not so much always the night before because maybe you're stressed about the final packing you have to do in the morning, but that general feeling when you're anticipating your vacation, you're finally going to have that break. Or you arrive to vacation, the stress of planning and packing is hopefully behind you, and you're looking ahead to the week and it seems like it's, you know, there's a whole eternity waiting for you. Then midweek comes and we are already counting down the days, right? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's friendship. Uh, maybe it's sports. David Foster Wallace was an uh, American writer who passed away in 2008. And um, at one point he wrote uh, an essay about Roger Federer, the tennis player, who um, ironically just retired the other week. But the title of this essay was Roger Federer as Religious Experience. And here's how he concludes the essay, talking, he has Roger Federer in mind. Inspiration is contagious and multiform. And even just to see 
close up. Power and aggression made vulnerable to beauty is to feel inspired and in a fleeting mortal way reconciled. What's he getting at here? What's he trying to capture? There's a sense in which as we have these moments of pleasure at times, it's almost like we're, we're, we're being reunited with something we were made for. To use David Foster Wallace's word, reconciled, right? We, we recognize that we're separated from something. And, and we don't even know exactly what it is, but we sense this alienation, this separation from, let's just call it for now, our greatest good. And as we have these moments of pleasure in them, we feel like, well, maybe we're, this is like us being reconciled to that greater good. The pleasures of life can feel so pleasurable, right? But at the same time, here's the thing, they don't last. It's frustrating. No matter how hard you try in that moment to make that moment last forever, it doesn't last forever. No matter how hard you try to go back to that memory in the past or to try to recreate it in the present is never the same, is it? These moments of pleasure are fleeting. They're elusive. They don't last. I I like how David Foster Wallace put it, in a fleeting, mortal way. You know, we get glimpses, we have these moments, but they don't last. So, with the help of the preacher here in Ecclesiastes, we're going to reflect some this morning on this whole tension when it comes to pleasure. And we're going to think about two um, big ideas here. First, we're going to talk about the pursuit of pleasure, and then we're going to talk about the problem of pleasure. So just by way of review, I already did, I already uh, touched on it um, before I read the passage for us, but in chapter one, the preacher states his big idea, his thesis, which is vanity of vanities, life is all vanity. And we've talked um, in both weeks prior to this one about how that word literally means vapor, It has to do with something that is fleeting or elusive. So, you know, we talked about going out on a cold winter's night and seeing your breath as you breathe and imagine yourself trying to, like, catch it, right? Catch it and put it in a bottle or something. It's it's not possible. It it, it was there and now it's not. It's elusive. It's fleeting. And that's what is behind this word, um, vanity, that we see used 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he states the big idea that life is vapor. And what he means by this is as he sets out on this journey to make sense of life, to try to find ultimate meaning and and what it is that truly satisfies, to have that, that view of life where you see it all and you can connect all the dots, this comprehensive uh, view of life where you're able to say, ha ha, I see it all. His point is, is that that is not possible. We, we, we can't have access to that vantage point. And so as we move here into chapter two, um, we are going to join the preacher in these experiments, these t- uh, these studies, these, case, these cases, so to speak. And the first he's going to um, look at is pleasure. And he's going to basically ask this question, okay, is pleasure the answer? Maybe pleasure is what will give me that access to the greater good or that vantage point that will help me make sense of life. In verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure 
enjoy yourself. Remember, the preacher's search for ultimate meaning is not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not simply a mental exercise. He's giving all of himself to this journey, to this endeavor. You know, he says to his heart, it says, the heart in Scripture is the center of one's being. He's looking at this, he's um, going out on this exploration with the whole of his heart. This is a wholehearted search that he's on to find the meaning of life. He's expending energy and time on this. It's what we all do. We, we can't help it. It's, we're, we're wired to do this. You know, that, that's why we oftentimes um, hit these points in our lives where we're in crisis. And there's a sense in which we're trying to make sense of it all. We're trying to figure out the meaning of what's going on in this particular episode that we're seeing of, of life. And it's never just an intellectual pursuit, is it? It involves the whole of, like, we feel it. We don't just think it, we feel it. And that's why we find ourselves in crisis. Because if it was just a matter of the head, like I, I think we could navigate it without feeling that personal crisis. But the reality is, is that we feel it. And this is no different with the preacher here in Ecclesiastes. So what were some of the pleasures that the preacher pursued? Verse 2 he mentions laughter. Verse 3, alcohol. He says, how to cheer my body with wine. Verse 4, we could summarize it with the word art. He made great works, he says. Verses 5 and 6, nature. He talks about how he planted vineyards, fruit trees. He made gardens and parks. Verses 7 and 8, money and possessions. Talks about how he had slaves working for him, how he had treasure that he accumulated. Verse 8, he had singers, so we could say that he had access to music. Um, verse 8, concubines, sex, right? Verse 10, work. These are just some of the things that the preacher gave himself to. The, very, the varieties of pleasure that he pursued and he felt throughout his life. He had it all. He had it all. He says that in verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So he pursued these things with all the energy that he had. He's like, maybe one of these pleasures, maybe one of them holds the key. Maybe just one of them holds the key to to the meaning of life that will reunite me with that greater good that will give me that vantage point of life where I can connect all the dots and make sense of it all. He was living the good life, something that we all desire. We all desire the good life. Like, we don't necessarily go around thinking to to ourselves or telling others, yeah, I'm basically searching for the good life. But that's what we're doing every day of our lives. That's what informs the decisions we make. We want to flourish We want to thrive. We want to experience goodness. Now, sometimes we make poor choices in this pursuit. Sometimes we do great damage to ourselves and others. But what's in the background of it all is this desire, this desire for goodness, this desire for the good life. 
Now, pleasure is not bad or evil. God created pleasure. God created the world, and he gave us senses. God desires for us to experience pleasure. That's helpful context here, because as we're going to see, um, well, I'll just kind of point it out to you now. What's really interesting here is that, especially in verses 4 through 6, where he's talking about the, the, the vine, planting vineyards, fruit trees, creating gardens and parks, that, you know, that language. Um, there's a cluster of Hebrew words used in these verses that all also appear in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis is the first book of the biblical story, and chapters 1 and 2 are the introduction to the story. And we're going to see this time and time again. I touched on it last week, but the preacher of Ecclesiastes is consistently going back to the beginning. God's design for life, God's design for how the world is supposed to work is the the backdrop for the preacher's reflections. And, And that's part of, not part of, that's really gets us into the heart of the tension. That we sense that we're made for the good life. We experience these, the variety of pleasures that life has to offer But at the same time, there's still a void. We're still lacking. We're still confused. We're still trying to make sense of it all, and we're in tension. And basically, the tension is this. This is why the biblical story is so helpful in providing us with a worldview, a way of viewing the world and helping us to make sense of things. We can't do it ultimately or comprehensively. It's the point of Ecclesiastes, but it does provide help for us. It helps us make sense of this tension in particular. And basically, we could say it like this. We're caught in the middle. We're caught in the middle of a mess because we are separated from our good beginning at creation, the way that God made things to be. We have obviously not yet arrived to the point when God will make all things new. We find ourselves in this space where we experience pleasure, but we also experience Hardship. We also experience tragedy. And this leads to confusion. And the reason for that, that tension, is that we are caught in the middle. We are in the middle of the story, separated from our good beginning and our good ending. But he uses these words here in a cluster of words in verses 4 through um, 6 that also appear in Genesis 1 and 2. They're words such as to plant to garden, all kinds of fruit trees, to irrigate, and to sprout. The reason I point this out to you is because it's as if the preacher in his pursuit of pleasure is trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. He's trying to recreate Eden. And that's what we're all trying to do. It's another way of talking about our pursuit of the good life. We don't aren't fully aware of it, maybe some of us more so than others, but in our various pursuits and search for pleasure, what we're trying to do is to recreate Eden. If only I could experience this, maybe then that'll be the abundant good life that I'm I'm made for. We're all trying to find our way back to Eden. And that's a way of 
talking about the, the, the journey here of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Through all of these pursuits and reflections, he's trying to find his way back to Eden. Pleasure is not bad. God designed us for pleasure. The, the word shalom that we um, often bring up, that Hebrew word which means peace, it has to do with flourishing, with thriving, with wholeness. It's the fullness of life that God intends for us. God literally created us for pleasure. He created us to enter into His pleasure, the pleasure that He experiences within Himself. That is um, part of the act of creation, that God wanted to share the pleasure He experiences with human beings made in His image. The pursuit of pleasure is not bad. So pleasure is not bad, and the pursuit of pleasure is also not bad. It can be bad, but in and of itself, it is not bad. We were made for it. In fact, later on in this very chapter, I guess we'll see it, we'll get into it next week, in verse 24, the preacher says this, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. Receiving and enjoying God's good gifts offered to us in this life keeps us sane in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. Let me say that again. Receiving and enjoying God's good gifts offered to us in this life keeps us sane in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be. Now we're going to come back to that idea often throughout the remainder of Ecclesiastes. One theologian has said this, our deepest greed is for experience. We hunger for life. We hunger for life. We desire fullness of life. We desire the life to be the way that it was supposed to be. And this can often turn into a greed, as we're going to see in a few minutes when we switch to talking about the problem of pleasure. But the issue is not pleasure. The issue is pursuing pleasure in the wrong way or making too much of pleasure and elevating it to the place of God in our lives. This is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to guard us against. He's offering us his wisdom so that just maybe we don't make some of the same mistakes that he made in his life. So, What are some of the pleasures in your life? What are some of the the moments of pleasure that you experience? I think think it would be helpful for you to list them out. Not, I mean, you can do it right now. I'm not going to stop you. Um, But maybe during the week to list out um, some of the pleasures that God has given you in your life and how these pleasures have led to moments uh, or experiences of pleasure. And... Just take time to thank him for those things. Now we're going to add a second assignment to it in a few minutes. Let's now talk about the problem of pleasure. So Marcus Person is a wildly successful entrepreneur. Um, He's the creator of the video game Minecraft. I'm sure many of you have probably heard of it. One point, he sold his company for 2.5, not million, billion dollars. Uh, at the peak of his success, 
he tweeted this out on his Twitter account. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. The problem with getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. The problem with the preacher's pursuit of pleasure is that he tried to find ultimate meaning in life. He tried to approach these pleasures, to experience these pleasures in such a way that, as we've said, would unlock the key to life for him that would give him that experience, that taste of the good life in such a way that he would be fully satisfied for life. Did that happen for him? No. In both verse 1 and verse 11, he says that this was vapor. It was vanity. It was a chasing after the wind or a striving after the wind. We, we talked about this word last week because it appears in chapter 1 also. It's this idea of chasing, of shepherding, of trying to herd. And the preacher is basically saying he's trying to shepherd or herd the wind. I mean, it's like, imagine, like this wise guy, right? This guy who has all of this wisdom and he's painting for us a picture. Imagine him like in his, outside of his palace among all of this glory and wealth and he's running around trying to chase the wind. It's impossible, and he recognizes it. Also, four times in these verses, he says, he uses this phrase, for myself. For myself. And so it seems like his pursuit of pleasure was marked by selfishness. And this is one of the guards for us, the protections to help us as we think about our pursuits of pleasure, because again, Pleasure is not bad. The pursuit of pleasure is not bad. And maybe now go back to your list that you started to make in your mind and that you might work on some this week. Some of those pleasures, those moments of pleasures, how can they sometimes be marked by selfishness in your life? How is it that you sometimes misuse them? And so maybe, like I'm just going to pick one example, friendship. You have experienced moments of pleasure in friendship, maybe in conversation with someone. And it's been that moment where it's like, I I was made for relationship. I wish this time that we were spending together could last forever. And then as you try to recreate it, are there times in which you actually act selfishly? You mistreat that person to try to get some feeling for yourself. We can obviously apply this to anything on the list. It seems like the preacher's pursuit of pleasure was filled with, or at least at times, tainted by selfishness. He's not saying that pleasure is meaningless. As we know, pleasure contains unbelievable meaning. And pleasure has a function in life. It's meant to point us to transcendence. So going back to the beginning of the sermon and David Foster Wallace's essay on Roger Federer and talking about these moments of of pleasure that we experience, one of their purposes is to actually point us to transcendence. The the reason that we feel transcendence sometimes is these moments is because it's supposed to be that way. And within the context of God's story, we can say 
that these moments of pleasure are meant to point us to him. They're meant to point us to him. That we may give him thanks as the giver of all good gifts and so that we might learn how to relate wisely to these gifts that he's given us. Because so much of life, well, I'll say it this way, the essence of sin is really misusing the gifts that God has given us. That's what happened with the first humans in the garden. God gave them good gifts. He basically said, this is for you. I want you to flourish. I want you to cultivate this land. I want you to, to help the land itself flourish. And in doing so, you will flourish. And what do the first humans do? They rebel against God, thinking, remember from last week, that they could gain that vantage point in life, that they could actually be God, that they could usurp his authority and place themselves in his position, that they could know the difference between good and evil, that they could connect all of the dots and make sense of things better than he could. And it's a tragedy. And the tragedy is basically captured in how they misuse the good gifts that God has, is that me, has given them. That is me. It's definitely not you. So I don't know who else it would be. We misuse the good gifts that God has given us. This is the essence of sin. It's, but, it, but also, keep in mind, it's relational. Should I uh, switch to a stationary mic? I won't make you put up with that the rest of the time. You hear me? Okay. So we misuse God's gifts. I've said that five times. Now I'm trying to remember what I'm supposed to say after that. But this is the essence of sin. And it's, oh, I was saying that it is ultimately relational. It's relational. And it it is a sabotaging a ruining of relationship with God. And then that leads to sabotaging of relation, the other relationships in our lives, relationship even to ourself, relationship to others, relationship to the creation itself. In other words, all of these things that were meant to point us to God and enable us to experience the good life, we now tragically misuse. And it makes a mess of things. The the biblical word for this is idolatry. We take the things that God has given us and try to get them to be God for us. It doesn't work that way because those things are actually meant to point us to the one who is God for us. Also, these these moments, to go kind of deeper into this idea, these moments of joy that we experience, C.S. Lewis, in reflecting on his life, um, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, one of the things that drove him to the Christian faith to help him see truth and reality was actually the experience of joy in his life. Because he began to connect the dots and realize, wait, this is, there's something transcendent about these experiences. That they're, they're trying to point me to something beyond myself. And they're, they're trying to tell us, there's, you know that voice sometimes in your mind? There's got to be more to life than this. There's got to be more to life than this. Well, the good gifts of God in a fallen world have that function in our lives. They're meant to help us to come to that conclusion and then look for the one who is the giver of these good gifts. What happens is that we 
the way we relate to these, these pleasures or these good gifts is that we try to use them as a way of escape. You know what I mean? These pleasures that are good, given to us by God, in a fallen world, what we'll do is, instead of relating to them in a healthy way, of enjoying them and allowing that enjoyment to, uh, to allow us to enjoy God and give him thanks, we use them as a form of escape to deal with our problems. And this never delivers. It ends in heartbreak time and time again. You know, you, 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 I, I think about you know, the different articles I've read or even conversations. There was a recent article, I'm going to refer to it in a later sermon um, in the series about the sexual revolution and how it has failed us. But like, I think about those experiences of, you know, um, whether it be cheating on your spouse or um, having sex outside of the context of marriage as God designed it to be. What happens is we sometimes um, find ourselves waking up in the morning and the feeling is gone, right? Even, when, even with our spouse, that feeling is there. But we have these moments where it's, it's, it's like gone. It's like what? Why did I give myself to that person in that way? I was in pursuit of pleasure and I thought it could deliver and then it was a form of escape, right? And you wake up and you realize it didn't deliver. That didn't lead to the good life. It's not causing me to flourish. Now, we'll talk more about that particular reality um, at a later point in the series. But when we relate to these good gifts from God, use them as a form of escape, what happens is it damages us because we're looking to them to supply something or provide for us with something that is just not possible. You know what I'm talking about? We all know this feeling. So there's the problem. You know, there's the pursuit of pleasure, but the problem in that we, we go about this search for pleasure in the wrong way. So how do we reconcile these things? How do we make sense of them? Well, we have to recognize some of the things that we've already touched on. We have to recognize the place of pleasure. And it starts with recognizing that pleasure is good. Especially, for whatever reason, in the church, we devalue pleasure. We devalue desire. Did you know that desire is actually given to you by God? Your desires are meant to be good. Desires in and of themselves are gifts from God for us to experience life to its fullness. Now, in a fallen world, as those who are fallen ourselves, it you know, often takes a tragic shape. And we, uh, our desires are corrupted or we all act out on them in ways that um, are not healthy. But pleasure is given to us by God. And so maybe just having a positive starting point. A positive context for thinking about this will actually take you a long way. Instead of relating to everything in your Christian faith in a negative way and thinking that all of this is bad, I'm bad, I mean, there's some truth to, to what I'm saying here, but if that's our only way of looking at things, it's actually not biblical. We need to begin, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes is constantly doing, we need to, bring, we need to begin with creation. We need to go back to the beginning because that is real. Now, stuff has happened since then, but it's real. We are still image bearers of God. Pleasure is still a gift from God. We're still meant to experience pleasure in its pure and good forms. But stuff has happened, right? The fall has happened. 
And so here is, is this point with our list of pleasures um, it, where I think this exercise of kind of going through it and maybe writing out or reflecting on what are the ways in which you um, are prone to misuse these various pleasures? And what's going on there? Is it a form of escape? Um, is it something else? Spend some time reflecting. Like, to be wise people, we have to do work. That's what stinks about it. Like, I wish that I could just, like, automatically be wise. But the wisdom literature makes us work. That's why it's, it's hard to understand. Like, Book of Proverbs, it's like, what, what does that saying mean? Well, you, you have to go into it. You have to think deeply. You have to wrestle. You have to struggle. You have to think through application. And same applies here in Ecclesiastes. This require, if you want to be wise, you have to put in the work. And so go through your list. What are the pleasures that God has given you, the good gifts, and how are you prone to misuse them? God is pro-stuff. God created stuff. Christianity it, it actually has an earthy feel aspect to it. You know, going back to the beginning of, of what God intended. And so much of Christian pop spirituality misses over this. It, it talks about relationship to God in like these spiritual ways that are so disconnected from the realities of life. When God designed for us to live out our faith, our spirituality, in the context of those realities. Because what happens is, if we um, have this way of relating to God, where like, we're only thinking purely spiritual, what happens is we live out our faith in unhealthy ways among the stuff of life. Because it's real, it's there. And so we need to connect the two. And as we end, I want you to think about the heart of the Bible, the heart of the story. The heart of the story is God coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Like, think about this. He, he takes on flesh. Like, that's just remarkable and mind-boggling to begin with. He takes on flesh. He, he comes, he situates himself in the same relationships that we have in life. The relationship to God, the relationship to ourself, the relationship to others, and the relationship to the physical environment. Jesus situates himself, God situates himself in the same relationships that we have. And first and foremost, what he does for us is he goes to the cross as our substitute. As we put our faith and trust in him, what happens? Well, go back to David Foster Wallace and the beginning, the end of his essay, talking about this beauty that he sees in a tennis player and how it inspired him. Um, he, it caused him to feel inspiration, even reconciled. He adds that it was fleeting. But the heart of the gospel, the work that Jesus does for us, is he provides that reconciliation that we long for. The reason that we feel, oh, I forgot I don't have the wire. That, I've been doing that the whole time, haven't I? Um, the, way, the reason we feel that alienation, that separation from our greatest good, because the reality is we have been separated from God who is our greatest good by our sin. And the work that Jesus does on the cross is to reconcile us to God the Father. His atoning work covers us. His righteousness, his goodness becomes ours. 
But not only that, what Jesus did in his ministry was he modeled for us how to have these healthy relationships, the relationship to people, the relationship to stuff, the relationship to God. And as we learn to walk in his ways, the one who is ultimately wise, we become truly human. The humanity that we were made for. I want to end with this, because this will kind of set the stage for where we go next week. Sometimes I think that we have this idea that the problem with our desires and pleasure in a Christian life is that our desires are too strong, right? And maybe you've, maybe you've kind of been led to that conclusion in growing up in the church. I, I, I don't know. But sometimes we have this idea about our desires that the problem is, is that they are too strong. Like they're out of whack and they're just too powerful and they overtake us. The Bible actually says the opposite. It says that our desires are actually too weak, and we need to maybe work on strengthening them. C.S. Lewis, I mentioned him earlier, um, his Surprised by Joy autobiography. In an essay he wrote called The Weight of Glory, he said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't want that for us, as surprising as it might sound to you. He doesn't want us to be far too easily pleased. So let's give ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit, to strengthening our desires so that we might desire what is good, what is right, and what is beautiful. God, we pray that you would give us the stamina by the power of the Holy Spirit to put in the work that is required to grow in wisdom. And Lord, I pray that as that happens, we know as the preacher of Ecclesiastes is helping us to see that that won't give us the vantage point in life where we're able to connect all the dots and make comprehensive, perfect sense of life. But it will enable us to experience more fully the shalom that you intend for us, the pleasure that you desire for us. So I pray ultimately that you would help us in this tension of pleasure, that you would um, work in our hearts in such a way that you would cause us to desire what is good, what is right, and what is beautiful, and that in doing so, we would experience the pleasures that you intend for us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have uh, children who are in City Church Kids, you can go ahead and um, get them now.